Following the death of his wife, uh, Southern Baptist pastor Vance Havner published his journal, the diaries that he kept while his wife was ill, and he identified three levels of the Christian experience that I think are really important for us to note. He said there are mountaintop days when everything's going your way, God's good, life's good, relationships good, jobs good, kids are good, and, and we're it's kind of nice that those come once in a while, isn't it? And he's like these mountaintop experiences when God's just really, really showing up, we're tight with Him, and everything is going well. But he said those are not every day. In fact, it's not realistic to think that we're just going to go from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. Then he described the ordinary days, which are just the usual, ordinary, everyday days when you go through the normal tasks of life. Not really elated, but not really depressed. It's just life. And he said that's most of the Christian life. Most of our journey is just doing the everyday stuff of going and getting groceries and taking care of the house and going to work and being a witness for Christ where you go. Then he described this third level, which he said are the dark days. The dark days. The days when we trudge through discouragement. The days through we tr- when we trudge through depression, despair, opposition, and challenges. He said sometimes those days string into weeks, and those weeks string into months, and sometimes those months string into years in some circumstances before there is relief and before there's victory. I think that's a good way of looking at the Christian life. And all of us go through struggles and adversity and challenges in various ways. Some of you might be facing something today that's like, yeah, I'm, I'm at that place right now of really, really hitting some of the doubt and confusion and discouragement. Sometimes we can identify the human causes of that or the circumstances. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's just things are hard right now and we're facing some opposition. Sometimes it can become so great that we want to give up. And maybe you have been or are or know someone who's been at that place in life where it's just, maybe it's just not worth going on. The, the, the lights have gone out. And when that happens, when discouragement hits us, it is, it is a total discouragement. It doesn't just stay in one compartment. It kind of colors everything. And it puts a, a dark cloud over all of life, over family and ministry. And we stop seeing things clearly in our lives. We're totally affected by this. And sometimes there are very real causes, circumstantial. Sometimes there are biological, physical, physiological contributors to being down, discouraged, depressed. And, and yet, even with those, according to what we read in the Bible, in the New Testament, we're called to be followers of Christ. And so, to whatever extent I need to be seeking after God in these, even in this discouragement, we can say, how am I following Christ? How am I being the man or woman that God's called me to be, even as I'm going through this challenging, dark, discouraging time? Some people are more prone to discouragement than others. Some people have a more optimistic outlook on life. Others don't. But we're all called as Christ's followers to live as disciples on this journey. So today we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles open there, you can. Or go to the YouVersion Bible app. Go to Events First Free Church and you'll see the text there. Uh, Nehemiah 4, I'm just going to give you three A's about discouragement. Three A words that will help us to understand what discouragement is in our Christian life and how we can find the answer to it through this, this uh, truth that's coming from this section. So I'm going to start reading, and we're going to talk about the attack of discouragement with verse 1. So Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read the first 10 verses so we can get a picture of what's going on after last week when we had the long list of people that were building on the wall in Jerusalem. 
Sam Ballot was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think that they can make something of the stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Samballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the work was going on ahead of the gaps in the wall were being filled and repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw them into a confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. That last sentence is kind of the sentence, that's the heart cry of despair and discouragement, isn't it? Never, ever, 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 ever is this going to be done. We're never, ever going to see the sunshine again. I'm never, ever going to get out this conflict in my marriage. I'm never, ever going to find this job that's going to fulfill me. I mean, discouragement just seems to make something fatal and total about a temporary circumstance. So Sam Ballot and his cohorts were attacking. They didn't want the wall to happen, but they didn't, like, attack the wall directly, just like our enemy, uh, Satan and demonic forces, which, by the way, let me pause there. You might be new to the faith or wondering what we believe about spiritual forces and our enemies, the devil and demons. Are we the kind of church that believes in that? Yeah, that the New Testament and the Old Testament talk about a spiritual realm. And we believe very fully that there is a spiritual realm around us and that it's just as real as the chairs we're sitting on and the cars we drive. It's, in fact, it's, it's more real because it's where this warfare is going on. And while Satan is an individual spirit, there are demonic forces that oppose us. And sometimes the discouragement and the attacks that we can feel while there might be legitimate shame or guilt from something we've done or discouragement or depression, circumstantial, physiological, these enemies of ours, spiritual enemies, know how to jump onto that train and whisper that, whisper that lie in your ear, in your mind, in your heart that maybe you don't have what it takes. Maybe you're not going to get through this. Maybe it is all over. Maybe everyone does look at you as a failure. I mean, the, the lie, so the enemy kind of piggybacks on sometimes our own weariness and our own maladies and wants us to know that. So just know that as we go through this today and we believe, and, and this is where the battle is for us as we're building the wall of God's kingdom and influencing people for Christ. So the enemy's goal was to keep people discouraged because if, if he can get us discouraged, if he can get us thinking about how we can't do this and our problems, then we're not going to be building the wall. The enemy is not moved by us until our faith puts us into the game where we're actually helping to make a difference for Christ. Satan and evil forces and the world, the culture around us, 
not really afraid of us just because we're having Bible studies and because we're doing our group stuff and we come in here and sing some songs and we open the Word of God. It's, it's not just that. If we, if we go through our programs and we do our stuff, they're fine with that. It's when we say we want to take that now and we want to internalize it, we want to be transformed by the power of the gospel, and then we expect that we can be salt and light into this community and this world, and we can take it into our schools and workplaces and our community and our neighborhoods, and we can share the gospel with people, and we can be on that frontline battlefield of spiritual darkness. That's when we face opposition. That's when the enemies rear their heads and say, okay, let's see what we can do to, to just deflate this ministry that we call the church. Ridicule and threats. They can wear on us. Sometimes, by the way, it's not just the magnitude of the offense or the opposition. It's how long it goes on and how much it takes. Listen to verse 11. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down and kill them and end their work. Now, it's doubtful that Sam Ballot and Tobiah and those guys were going to massively assault from a frontal attack the city of Jerusalem and break down this wall and stop this because after all King Artaxerxes had put his full support behind Nehemiah financially and militarily to build this so it wasn't going to be a frontal assault it was going to be subtle it was going to be infiltrating the hearts and the minds of the people who were building on this wall that's the attack of our enemy that's what our enemies want to do. They want to sow discord. They want to get us talking evil about one another. They want us to deceive and manipulate one another. They want us to undermine the unity in the church. They want us to to really call into question the motives and the work that God is doing among us. When the position of discouragement sets in, the results are often devastating. And one thing that downhearted followers of God don't like to talk about is obedience. It's true in Nehemiah, and it's true here. I mean, when I'm feeling discouraged and down, don't tell me I need to obey God, because look at what's going on here. Look at all the things that are happening to me. Look at what a mess I'm in. Look at where I'm at right now. Don't tell me I need to obey God. And so we don't like to obey sometimes in that, because discouragement, despair, by definition, is kind of an inward-focused experience. And then when we are called to obey, when we're called to actually move to something, that challenges that very core of what discouragement is all about. When I was in high school, the church that I was attending in central Illinois, a little farm, a little church in a farm town, had a community just several miles from us, little bitty village that had seven businesses. All of them were taverns. That was the whole business and all the, this little town. There was nothing else to do there but to go drink. Seriously. And we had a vision to plant a church there. And so we prayed about it, prayed about it. Some of the people that attended our church lived in that community. And so we began to plan and we set up a tent there and we had some meetings one summer, old fashioned tent meetings. And we were going to plant a church and we got word out and we immediately faced opposition, real spiritual opposition. And one evening as we were getting ready for the services, a man rode his motorcycle right into the tent and parked his motorcycle in the tent and he got off of his motorcycle and he had holsters on with handguns in each holster and he got into the front row and he sat down right in the front row and he waited. And there were some people that went home. There were some people, all right, I'm done with this thing right now. There were other people that went over and said, man, we are so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. 
And they stayed through. And it was that kind of opposition and that kind of, of real hard work that resulted in that little village that had seven taverns now as a church where people can come and hear Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel. I, I was reading a book years ago and asked a question that's a, it's been a haunting question for me as a pastor. And I think it would be haunting for all of us even as, in our church. The author asked the question, where in your ministry are you 100% dependent on the power of Christ to push back the forces of darkness? Where in your ministry are you 100% dependent on the power of Christ to push back the forces of darkness? That's where we're going to have opposition. The enemy's not concerned with all the cool stuff we do until we're actually in Betting the gospel into lives of broken people and we're winning them for the kingdom. That's when we face opposition. So that's the attack. Now let's talk about the attitude. The attitude that we get sometimes in this discouragement. It's easy to want to give up. It's easy to want to give up. Fall into verse 10. We will never be able to finish this wall. It might come out like this. Uh, I'm burned out from ministry. I'm done. I have nothing left to give. Maybe this is too big a project for us to take on. Maybe we're not going to be able to do what we thought we could do. Maybe we misheard God after all. Maybe he didn't really tell me to come and rebuild this wall. Maybe I should have just stayed where I was. Maybe it's a voice that says, this is as good as your marriage is going to get. Why keep trying? Just, just give up. Be happy somewhere with someone else. Maybe... Your ministry, what God's called you to do, and you keep striving for it, and you keep hitting these obstacles and obstacles and obstacles, and you're ready to give up, and, and it's just like, I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. The comment is really interesting. There's too much rubble to rebuild. Too much rubble here. But we also read in this section, the wall was halfway built right now. So nobody was trucking new rubble in in the evening when, when they were sleeping. For some reason, the wall was halfway rebuilt and now these enemy attacks and the discouragement comes in and they're like, there's too much rubble here. There's less rubble here than when we started because the wall's halfway built. See, the attitude of discouragement has less to do with the circumstances and more to do with what's going on in our head and in our heart because the wall was halfway built. But they weren't looking at the halfway built wall Instead, they were being discouraged about the attacks of the enemy. A great lesson for all of us in ministry, the first half of anything is easy. The first half of anything is easy. My attic and my basement are testimonies to this. Project after project that I was really excited about when I got started, and then they lost their shine, and, and now they're just sitting there. The first half of anything, we can almost do the first half of anything with just enthusiasm and naivety and ignorance about it, and we're just going to plow into this, and we're moving in, but then it gets hard. It gets hard to continue in a relationship with your neighbor who's resistant to the gospel. It gets hard. It gets hard to continue to do ministry when our culture around us keeps saying, you guys are haters. No, we're not haters. We're lovers, but we, we want people to love, be loved by God, but we just keep being labeled wrong. It gets hard when we really push in to those areas in ministry. The first half of anything is easy. 
What's that mean for our church today? What's it mean for, I mean, in the last year, we've redesigned some of the structure in our, our ministries, and we've realigned some things, and we're really saying we want everyone in groups where, whether that's a Sunday morning class group or a home group or a men's group, women's group, care ministry, where you're actually doing church, you're belonging to one another, you're caring for each other and growing and serving and building community. And we want our outreach ministry to be integral to everything we do in discipleship so that the, the main goal is to get all of us, every one of us to have that light bulb go off that we, God can and will use me, can and will use you to make a difference for his kingdom across the street and across the world. The first half of that is going to be really easy, guys. But then as we continue down that road and we hit the obstacles, we hit the challenges, when it gets hard, when all of a sudden the newness is worn off, that's when we really figure out how we're going to face the discouragement and the opposition. So in addition to giving up, sometimes in discouragement, it just says, just give in, just give up on this. Nehemiah 4, let's read again verses 11 and 12. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So they were putting this fear in them, probably a very unlikely fear given King Artaxerxes' support for them, but nonetheless, it was the threat that they had. And the citizens were dangerously close to giving up. They're just saying the wall project is over. The humiliation of the past 90 years since the wall was destroyed. See, despair deflates our outlook with no hope. We just give in. At the point in Nehemiah 4, Sam Ballot and his allies were very near victory. They had not fired a shot. They had not challenged anybody physically. They didn't need to. The people of Jerusalem we're ready to say, okay, we better just stop because we can't do this anymore. I alluded to this last week, but it's still applicable in this chapter also. And one way to illustrate it, I don't know if you remember a movie years ago, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, a powerful film. And at one scene in that film, Morgan Freeman is kind of the sage in the prison yard describing to the other prisoners there why this man who had just had just tried to murder someone in prison in order to stay in prison because he was just notified he could be paroled, that was going to be paroled. And they were saying how stupid this guy was going to get out, and then he just about killed this guy so he could stay in. And here's what Morgan Freeman said. He said, you don't know what institutionalized is. He said, when you come in here, at first you hate these walls, and then you get used to them. And then here's the real profound part. Then enough time passes, you come to depend on them. You come to depend on the walls that are your prison. And that's what was happening in Nehemiah. It's what happens in my life and your life. This mess we're in and we think we want to get out and then it gets really hard. And it's like, you know what? This rubble's been ours for, think about it. Some of these people, their whole life, they've lived this. Let's just, let's just keep the rubble. It's our rubble. I'd rather have the rubble than all this discouragement and these attacks coming from Sambalat and Tobiah. And we so often want to stay in the mess we're in instead of pushing through and seeing something new. So let me ask you this. Has despair crept into your spiritual life? Are you ready to throw in the towel on your marriage, on your job, on your ministry? 
Has God planted a seed, a dream in your heart for ministry and you're ready to throw in the towel and say, it's just not gonna happen? Allowing this discouragement to force you out is exactly what the enemy wants to do. One lesson that we learned last week in Nehemiah chapter three is that every one of you, if you're a Christ follower, part of our community here, God has a place for you in service, in meaningful service to make a difference for his kingdom. Every single one of us. And there's, there's no need for any of us to like give up and say, I'm not going to work on the wall anymore. We all are called and have a place to serve. The stakes are too high. Think about it this way. Who is the person or people who influenced you towards Jesus Christ? The person or people who didn't give up on you, who prayed and taught and cared for and loved and witnessed to you. What if they would have given up? What if they would have said, yeah, this is just too hard. This Richardson guy's never going to get it. No, we need to stay on the wall and stay working. So let's look at the third A, which is the answer to discouragement. And this is where it gets exciting. Start with me at verse 14 of Nehemiah 4. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. Don't be afraid of them. I mean, that's a common theme throughout the scripture, isn't it? God's people get fearful. We get afraid. We shy away from the call that God's given to us. And Nehemiah reminds them, don't be afraid of them. Remember your Lord who is great and awesome. See, if, if we're discouraged, what we need to do is we need to correct our focus. At the beginning of this project, Nehemiah came in. He got everyone wound up about this amazing message he had from God that this was humiliating and it was a horrible experience and testimony to God that these walls were broken down for almost a century and God wants us to rebuild them and they they start rebuilding and somehow their focus then came off of God as these lies were coming in and these attacks were coming in and their eyes came off of God and they came on themselves and their own pain and their own disillusionment. The problem in Jerusalem was not the scope of the project, not at all. The problem in Jerusalem was not the opposition. The problem in Jerusalem was not the strength of the workers. It wasn't that this was above their pay grade. The problem in Jerusalem in this chapter was that the people took their eyes off of God. And they they exchanged their view of God that was accurate for listening to the lies of these opponents. Again, in verse 10, there's so much rubble here, we can't rebuild the wall. They started looking at the rubble, which had to be less than when they started because they're halfway done. And let's just pause there. In your discouragement, what if you take your gaze off of the, the mess that you're in and you see, wow, what, what has God already done? Maybe my marriage is still hard. Maybe I still am facing some real discouragement. Maybe I do have doubts in my faith. Maybe I I don't do relationships really well and I'm lonely and I need somebody in my life and I don't understand why I can't make connections with people and have deep friendships. And then we can get so discouraged focusing inward. But what if we just said, but let me just for a minute look around and see how high the wall is already. What has God already done for me? How has God already shown his faithfulness to me in my life? That's the kind of lesson that this chapter brings to us. So Nehemiah gives them a really specific description of God. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And 
I would encourage you sometime today, pull out as many Bible translations as you can or get online and look it up in Bible Gateway and just see all the different ways that verse is translated because some incredibly rich words are used there. This word great has the root meaning of a tower. God is great. And in the Old Testament, sometimes God is called a tower of strength. He's over all that he commands. And then that word um, glorious, awesome, some translations even say terrible because that, that word has a wide lexical range of meanings. It can be anything from fear-inspiring, reverence, godly fear, terror. It's that part of God, God's character and his personhood that is kind of paradoxical. Because at the same time, we should fear God because he's an incredible, holy, righteous God. And we are sinners and we are separated from him because of our sin. So there ought to be a little bit of fear and reverence from him of, or toward him because of his holiness. And then there's also that fear that is worship that, is, uh, that draws us to him. So at the same time, we're, we're fearing God in reverence. We're drawn to him as our father. And in the church, in the history of the church and sometimes in local churches, we tend to swing, the pendulum swings to God as his whole, we see God as holy, 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 and we see the reverence and the fear that he's a just, righteous God, and we're sinners, and we don't do as much of the he's my father and wants to have a relationship with me. And then sometimes the pendulum swings the other way to just God's my best friend, we have coffee, he's my dad, and, and, and we lose that holiness that is that reverence. The wonderful thing is when, what that, word means, what that concept means is it's a both and. That we have a God who is holy and righteous and just and in control of this whole world who we get to call Father. And we get to know personally. So whatever those voices in, Satan that you're whispering in my ear that I don't matter and that I can't do this, that's just wrong. Because I have a God who is all powerful and all loving. I have a God who is in control of all things and who I can call Father. That's, the, that's what Nehemiah wanted them to get. We need to get our focus back on Yahweh. Nehemiah was doing a lot more than giving them a lesson in theology, though. He was drawing on their history. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21. This is in the context of recounting the law of Moses and the directives that Moses gave to the people of Israel. So Nehemiah was reminding them of something they already knew to be true. They just weren't remembering it and applying it. Deuteronomy 7.21. Do not be terrified by them, for the Lord your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. And again in Deuteronomy 10.17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows not partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Our fear, our reverence, our worship ought to be towards the God who's called us to build the wall, not toward the enemy who's telling us we can't do it. Because when we give worship and reverence and honor to God, we're encouraged in the mission that we have. The people of God, we draw motivation from that. Look at verse 14 again. Not only draw motivation from worshiping God, but think about others. Because, and remember, discouragement and depression is always an inward-focused view. It's about me and my pain. It's about me and my darkness. And sometimes it's hard, given the circumstances or whatever's going on inside someone's heart. But 
the best we can, sometimes it's good to say, how am I serving? How am I getting out of this cycle of just looking inward? And Nehemiah does that in verse 14. Fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Because despair is a self-focused response. And Nehemiah is saying, no, we've got a community here. God's called us to something huge. Another answer to discouragement is to keep working. It's interesting, Nehemiah doesn't say, all right, I can tell you guys are down. Let's just take a couple weeks off. Everyone go to the beach, take some time off, get refreshed, come back, and we'll hit this again in a couple weeks. That's not what Nehemiah does. He doesn't give them time off. He's like, let's get back in the game. We've got a great and awesome God who's called us to do this. Let's be refreshed by our faith view, not by pulling back from the work that we've got. Look at verse verses 13 through 23. I'm going to read this whole section. It's kind of lengthy, but it really wraps this chapter up well. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall and exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families, armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And I'll continue with verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to work on the wall. But from then on, only half of the men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall, the laborers carried on their work with one hand, supporting their load, while on the other hand holding a weapon. Did they sound tired to you? There was no weariness here, was it? It was, it was discouragement. That's what it was. They're like full bore. Let's build this wall now. Let's keep going with verse 18. All the builders had swords belted to their side. The trumpeters stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and officials, the work is very spread out. We're widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it's sounding, then our God will fight for us. He keeps reminding them. A good leader is going to remind his people. A good friend is going to remind a friend, God is going to fight for us. God is going to do this. This wall is going to be built. Uh, Then verse 21, we worked early and late, sunrise to sunset. Half the men were always on guard. I told everyone living outside the city walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor servants, nor the guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us all the time, even when we went for water. Nehemiah said, game on. Okay, now it's getting hard. Now it's getting tough. We're feeling the opposition. That means we need to push into this. And we need to step up our game. Yes, we plan. Yes, we prepare. We watch out for each other. But we move forward with the building of the wall. It's kind of interesting. If we look ahead to to chapter 6, we find out this entire wall was constructed in 52 days. The rubble representing a century, almost a century of disgrace, was fixed in couple months. Isn't it scary how near it was at this point for it to stop? That it looked so daunting. This wall will never be finished. That's where discouragement had them here. When they got their eyes off of themselves and off of the rubble, and they put their eyes back on this great and glorious God, all of a sudden, God comes through. 
and he's fighting for us, and he's getting us on the wall, and we're working together as a team, back like in chapter 3, and this wall is done in amazing time. So what does God have in store for us as a church? Let's start there. As we think of the analogy to our church, to First Free Church, as we're building ministry, wherever you're serving, whether it's an official program of our church or just how God has called you to love your neighbors, to be part of our family in building this kingdom here in our community and around the world. Where are you on the wall? What's discouragement doing? How do you have your eyes set on this great and awesome God? And personally for you in your home, in your family, when your ministry, we need you. God wants to use you to make a difference for his kingdom. And that's what we're called to do. Eternity, glory, that's what's at stake. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. I love this section as we apply it in our own lives today. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 12. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark places, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. That's where we're at. That's how we get on the wall. When Sarah and I were first married, like many newlywed couples, we had a car that was... Uh, very, very used. And one of the features on this car was when we would drive down the road, the rearview mirror on the driver's side, if you hit a bump, would jostle around. Or even if you went very fast on the interstate, it would like shift around. So we always had to reset that mirror so that we could have an accurate view of what's behind us. And I think that's a good picture of what this chapter is about. We need to make sure we're adjusting our mirrors, adjusting our vision, so that we keep focused on what we need to stay focused on, so we avoid discouragement, we avoid this uh, despair that causes us to give up in the fight. I found a short prayer that I wanted to kind of wrap up with today. And this prayer has been attributed over the years to Sir Francis Drake, who was a 16th century leader in in England in the church there. There's very little evidence that shows it was. It's just one of those always attributed to. But So I feel like I can take some liberty with it, which I'll do right now. Uh, I think this is a good prayer that will give us a, a concise little statement to take away from here. Here's the prayer. God, please help me to remember, or help us to remember, that it is not the undertaking of any great ministry, but the continuing of that ministry until it is thoroughly finished, that results in your glory and your praise. It is not the undertaking of any great ministry, but the continuing of that ministry until it is thoroughly finished that results in your glory and praise. So if you're tired today, if you're weary, if you're discouraged, if you've been hearing the voices saying, just give up, just stop, listen to this. Listen to this prayer. The ultimate goal is God's praise and glory. And we're not going to really see that fully till we're with him in heaven in eternity. For this season of life, we keep pushing in. So I'm going to ask you to do something. If, if you're with me on this prayer, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me out loud. And let's pray this prayer as a commitment together as First Free Church to push through the, the discouragement and despair. If we're feeling it today or a week from now or a month from now, and see God's glory and see him finish the work he wants to do through us. Pray this prayer with me out loud. God, 
please help us to remember that it is not the undertaking of any great ministry, but the continuing of that ministry until it is thoroughly finished that results in your glory and praise. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. God, I want to pray especially for people that are sitting here right now who maybe are going through some real dark times right now. Perhaps the lights are off and their focus has been on anything but you. And, and maybe there's real good reasons, valid reasons for that. Physiological, circumstantial, relational. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, regardless of what other contributors there are to this discouragement, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would let them right now get a glimpse of your greatness and your glory. That they would get a glimpse of this great and awesome God who wants to keep them in the game and get them off the sidelines. Help them not to give up. Help us as a church not to give up when things go hard, get hard. Help us to stay on the wall, to keep doing our ministry, to keep sharing our faith with people, to keep loving our neighbors, to keep helping one another in our community to walk this journey as a husband and wife, as a man and woman, mom, dad, son, daughter, student, coworker, whatever the roles are that we are, to do this ministry for your glory and for your kingdom. We want you to get all the praise and all the thanks. Amen. So a couple things before we go. Next week, you're not going to want to miss Kevin Crosley. He's going to bring the message next week. And we're going to continue in Ephesians. Or in, in uh, sorry, Ephesians. Just read Ephesians. Continue in Nehemiah. Then after that, this is really fun. We're going to turn on the Wayback Machine. And after Kevin preaches next week, Mike Andrus is going to come. And Mike Andrus is going to preach, continuing in our series of Nehemiah. And then Bill Jones is going to come. Don't tell them about the Wayback Machine con comment, but, but it's kind of cool, isn't it? I think it's great that we can, we can be a church where we're, we're bringing back our two former senior pastors to come and participate in this, in this series as we go through Nehemiah. So come back next week. Look forward to more. I'm going to see you in a couple months. I'm taking off for sabbatical, so thanks for your time today. Let's go out and let's stay on the wall this week. See you next week.